This is the Everything is Black and White podcast, brought to you by Chronicle Live, bringing you the latest insight on everything to do with Newcastle United. You can find us on iTunes, Acast, Spotify, or most podcast providers. Hello and welcome to the Everything is Black and White podcast. I'm Andrew Musgrove. It's time for another episode of Gibbo's Corner. Uh, this one is on the unsung heroes behind the scenes at Newcastle United from Kath the Tea Lady to the footballing scouts you've maybe never heard of. Uh, Gibbo, of course, has worked with many of these over his time at the Chronicle and struck up excellent relationships. Um, unfortunately, a few of the names that we are going to mention are no longer with us, but their legacy and their reputation, of course, lives Absolutely. on on side. Um, Gibbo, I'll let you begin. Yeah, yeah. Well, the, the first one is the guy, Freddie Fletcher, who was the chief executive at Newcastle United, in a wonderful period for us because he was the man he worked on the magpie group with john hall i was on the magpie group freddie joined the magpie group very early on before we won control of newcastle united uh, he'd worked for morton up in um, scotland the the club football club morton's football club he'd worked with glasgow rangers when Sunes was manager there and they were smashing the way they did business signing all the top English stars, Butcher, etc. He had wonderful links with Newcastle Brewers. David Stevenson, who was the MD at Newcastle Brewers, was a personal friend of his, so this all came to play when the entertainers started. But, I mean, Freddie was very, very significant to us because he was the man behind Newcastle United getting Kevin Keegan as manager. Kevin had been here as a superstar player, but he was buying getting him as manager. And then he negotiated all the deals to bring the great entertainers, the great players to Newcastle after KK had identified who he wanted all the way from his first signings, Brian Kilkline, right away up to a world record FIFA and Shearer. It was Freddie Fletch that did the, the deals and completed the deals. I mean, Freddie's immediate impact was once John Hall had moved into Newcastle and it was a very difficult period and it didn't just happen where one day they weren't in at all and the next day they had total control. They moved on to the board, then they had to move members of the board out, etc., etc. And um, he was looking to see what could happen at Newcastle. Uh, obviously, Ozzy O'Dealers was manager at the time when the Magpie Group took over the club. And Ozzy was a, a World Cup winner, of course, one of the great footballers of all time. But as a manager, didn't quite cut it. Newcastle were in the second division. Um, he was playing kids and encouraging kids and a lot of kids from um, Steve Watson to Lee Clark to have wonderful, wonderful memories of Ozzy. Uh, he converted Howie, Steve Howie, from a centre-forward to a centre-half. Unfortunately, when you play a lot of bends, as somebody once famously said, you're winning out. And we weren't winning anything. We are scoring three goals, but we're letting in five and we're in danger of going down from the second division. And so there was a, a an emergency meeting behind the scenes saying, what do we do about it? It was quite quickly established that what would have to happen was Aussie leaving, but then what? And it was Freddie Fletcher who said, let's go for Keegan. Now, that was sensational. Maybe Kevin Keegan had been an absolute hero at Newcastle United as a player. He took them back into the uh, first division. He was a superstar player. But you've got to remember, at that time, he'd retired from playing 
with Newcastle United, was his last club after winning promotion. He retired from playing. He'd gone out to Marbella to set up home. He was playing golf in Marbella. He'd lived out there for eight years. He'd never managed a football club in his life. He was completely out of the loop as far as contacts were concerned. But Freddie Fletch could see the charisma in the guy, could see the fact that the crowd would immediately swing behind the last superstar playing hero and so the whole thing was put into motion Newcastle took a private jet down to London um, to meet KK there was uh, Freddie Shepard, Freddie Fletch and Douglas Hall and David Stevenson, the guy I mentioned who was the MD of Newcastle Breweries who were to play a very significant part in the signing because they were going to, they matched Kevin Keegan's wages In other words, his wages were doubled because Newcastle paid 50% and Newcastle Breweries paid the other 50% to make it a top wage on condition that Keegan went round the breweries once a week and did talk-ins in front of their their customers. Um, So they flew down to London. John Hall was already in London and Keegan was flying over from Spain. They met at the Hilton Hotel. And the funny thing was, and because I, I, I talked to the Newcastle contingent, obviously I was part of the Magpie Group. They met at, at the Hilton Hotel, and when Newcastle United walked in, there was the press were all over the place, and television cameras now, and they thought, oh God, the words got out, we're meeting KK, the press are here, we, we don't want it out at this stage. Not true, there was a variety club lunch and all the showbiz superstars were attending that lunch in the hotel and that's why the press were there. Um, The wonderful thing about KK from the start, Newcastle United were in a perilous situation when Hall moved in, (coughs) of being skint, being absolutely cash-strapped. And while Hall was going to change all that, um, he hadn't the ultimate power at that stage. He was in, but there were still old members of the board still in that needed clearing out. So they had no door. So Kevin Keegan actually paid for the room that Newcastle United met him in to talk about terms. Uh, While discussing coming to Newcastle United, he mentioned that he wanted Terry McDermott to come at his number two, but said... I will pay Terry McDermott's wages out of my own pocket. So uh, how keen was Keegan to come here? He paid for the whole room for Newcastle to meet him in and he paid, he offered to pay McDermott out of his own pocket to come and be his number two. Um, they quickly agreed to the idea of Keegan coming and Keegan is one of these impetuous guys. If you if you pitch an idea to him and he likes the sound of it, he'll run with it to the end of the earth. Uh, so they flew straight from London to Southampton So because KK had kept his house in Southampton while he had the house in Marbella. They flew to Southampton for him to get gear out of the house and then they flew on from Southampton to uh, Teesside Airport because uh, Kevin Keegan was going to stay when he had all overnight at John Hall's house. Uh, so they flew into Teesside Airport. Bear in mind, none of this had come out into the public domain whatsoever. Uh, they flew to Winyard Hall, put up at Winyard Hall. Freddie Fletch was invited to stay overnight because it was very late by the time they got to Winyard Hall. And rather than motor up to Newcastle, uh, they said, look, stay overnight and we'll all go up to St James's Park the next morning. So... Freddie Fletch, without having any overnight bag, etc., just went into one of the rooms. At half past, he told me the tale after it was half past one in the morning, there was a knock on the door and he suddenly come to. 
for a second didn't realise where he was, then realised he was in this, he was in Winnie at all. I had no idea where the lights were, the light switch in the bedroom. Staggered to the door in his underpants, opened the door and immediately fell headlong all the way down the stairs to the bottom of the stairs because he couldn't see. And, of course, it was KK at the door who was hysterical with laughter uh, at Fletch lying on the on the floor down the stairs. What had happened, he, um, his wife, KK's wife, jo- Jean, had been on the phone to him and said, Kevin, I'm panicking. He lived in an isolated house out in Hampshire and there'd been a knock on the door at half past one in the morning and Jean had panicked, thinking, oh, dear me, the word must have got out. Newcastle were paranoid about the word getting out. You know, the variety club crowd and then the knock on the door there, what shall I do? I think it'll be the press, etc., etc. It actually turned out it was a bloke that got a puncture in his car, was knocking to ask if he could use the phone to get somebody to come and mend the puncture. Um, but the interesting thing was the next day, um, everybody transported to Newcastle. Now, believe it or not, the rest of the board, because there were still all members of the board waiting to be cleared out, while John Hall, Douglas Hall and Freddie... Uh, Shep ran the club, there were still old members of the board that they hadn't got to getting rid of at this stage. And believe it or not, they hadn't got rid of Aussie Ordealers at this stage either. So they got up the next morning, went to St James's Park with a, a battle plan in place. The first one was that Freddie Fletcher went up at nine o'clock to um, Aussie Ordealers' house to effectively give him the sack. While that was happening, John Hall told the rest of the board, the outsiders on the board, this is what we've done, mate. We own the major shares. We're having a change of manager and this is happening. In the meantime, Keegan is sitting behind the scenes in the Newcastle breweries waiting at 9.30 to be unveiled as the manager. Um, Because I'd been part of the Magpie group, I'd obviously knew all... This was happening. So I'd gone in the office at half six in the Crown office, written the story, the page one lead, just walked in casually and said, by the way, this morning, A, Ozzy O'Dell's getting the sack, B, Kevin King's getting the job, C, there's a press conference at past nine. Absolute panic. But we had the before the press conference happened, we'd written the page one lead, etc., etc. on this. And, I mean, you can imagine how sensational it was, Keegan coming back as manager. And uh, the big laugh with Freddie Fletcher's when he went up to the house to see... Ozzy Ordealis, who was an absolute gentleman, a lovely, lovely man. Um, he told him, sorry, you're going to have to go, mate. The results have been bad. Ozzy is such a gentleman, he invites him to, to have breakfast, having just got the tin tack. He invites him to sit down and have bacon and eggs with him for breakfast. So Freddie Fletch pulls up the chair, has bacon and eggs with, um, with him. And the, <laughs> the rumour was that while he was with... Aussie up there, haven't given them a sack, and he measured the windows in his lounge to see what size for curtains because Freddie actually moved it. Freddie Fletch, who had been up in Scotland, actually moved into Aussie's old house when Aussie, after Aussie got the sack. And obviously, Vietnam denied that he'd done any such thing, but always said, Hey, you measured the curtains, didn't you? Asked him if he was leaving the curtains and the carpets when he left. Um, and then out, out come um, KK as the boss, and it was an incredible, the start of an incredible run, as we all know. And the, the interesting thing was that he was involved in all the signings. Um, 
He was known, Freddie's nickname was the Rottweiler because if he got his teeth into you, he never let go until he shook a deal out, out of you. And that was, he was a very, very tough negotiator, a, bloody, a Glasgow man, a, a tough man that had been brought up in politics, uh, but a funny man. And um, he was buying all the transfer deals. The targets were set by Keegan. The manager did that in those days, rather than the board. Keegan picked who we wanted to sign. Freddie Fletcher got the financial part of it over the line. And I mean, some brilliant players, wasn't there? Les oh. Ferdinand, Warren Barton, they were breaking records left, right and centre. And totally. I suppose totally. when you're talking about that amount of money in context to back in 95, 96, I said mm. breaking records, it, it speaks a lot when Sir John Hall goes, right, OK, he has the checkbook. Yeah, Fletch, you go out and you go out and sort the deal. I mean, that's why Kevin Keegan, when he fleetingly come back to Newcastle United under Mike Ashley, and suddenly had Dennis Wise sitting on his shoulder telling him, "You can't do this, you can't do that, and you can't do the other," just found it absolutely impossible to work under those circumstances because he'd worked with John Hall. But because John Hall was his first chairman, he didn't realise how good that situation was. He probably thought that's the way it is for managers to get that sort of backing. He did realise, even though he moved on to Fulham and the the guy that Al that Van Harrods and he, he got quite a decent hand then in buying players he never had a situation as good as he had here and um, one of the fun transfers that, that Freddie Fletch was involved in was Tino Aspria remember when we got Tino Aspria just uh, who was an outrageously talented wonderful player um, during the negotiations with Palmer, we signed him from CVA in Italy, uh, the negotiations with Palmer, Newcastle brought into play the, an injury that uh, Asprey had had and it became very difficult between the two clubs. They accused Newcastle of using the injury to try to pull the price down. Newcastle wanted to make certain they got a good deal. So John Hall sent... Freddie Fletcher and Russell Jones, who was another Newcastle United director, over to Italy to act as a peacemaker to get the deal over the line. Um, and at the end of a long, difficult negotiations, uh, the Palmer president got up in the boardroom to say a few words with um, Jones and Fletcher listening. Freddie Fletcher replied by saying, thank you very much, Mr. President. And the bemused interpreter, Newcastle's interpreter, asked, turned to Fletch and said, why did you shake hands? The, the President's just called you a little sh... it, for, for the way the deal had been done, which is... And, of course, it was Russell Jones that told the story, but Fletch didn't mind because he, he rather liked the idea that as a negotiator, he was a little one of those uh, because he was a tough negotiator. But, um, I mean, his background, his background, Andrew, was literally that. He was born into the shipbuilding town of Greenock up in, up in Scotland. He never knew his father. He was killed during World War Two. He grew up in a house with his mother, her parents and seven relatives. So he was a tough tough guy with a real edge to him. He'd gone to America for a year to, in publishing, but he was really a budding politician. He was in local politics as a Liberal Democrat. Um, and then 
he got to know Stevenson and through Stevenson he got to know Sir John Hall. He just was finishing at Glasgow Rangers and so it was perfect time for us. We needed a tough negotiator for John Hall to hand on the toughest part of the deals to and Freddie Fletch was exactly that and he was a warm man that he stayed in Newcastle uh, after finishing at Newcastle United with the whole regime finishing at Newcastle United. He stayed down here for the rest of his life. He died in 2012 living in Newcastle. He was only 71 years of age and ironically he died of cancer brought on by exposure to asbestos uh, which he believed that he'd come into contact with as a young man when he was walking past the dockyards uh, in Greenwich, etc. But I mean, I've got terrific memories of, of, of Freddie Fletcher. He was a bit like Marmite to outsiders that didn't know him. You either loved him or you hated him because he was a tough cookie. But he was exactly what Newcastle needed at the time. Very, very charismatic. And we've got to be eternally grateful because not only did he get us Keegan as manager, and what a risk that was, but he then, Keegan having identified everybody who wanted the tough negotiations to get Les Ferdinand from QPR, which he worked on for about five years, to, to, to get coal from Bristol City, to, to get all the way up past Aspria in Italy, all the way up to Shearer, who was wanted by Manchester United, and we nicked him from under the nose, and he did all those deals. I see. He'd worked at Glasgow beforehand. Mm. Could he spot talent himself or was he much more of a businessman? Because he was, because I'm just I, reading up on him. Yeah. Uh, he did say once in an interview that uh, the fictional character he most admired was Roy of the Rovers and yeah. that he wanted to, to score the winning goal in an Epic Cup final for Newcastle United. So there was that element that he did. Oh, like there football, was. But was it when it came to actually doing the deals? Could he, could he spot talent himself or was it about he was just no, sorting the money out? he couldn't really uh, spot talent. Um, he knew as a hard-nosed businessman. It was the, wo- the wonderful thing, really, was that the right people all came together at the right time. People of vision, people that didn't go to work in blinkers but had, had a, an absolutely 190-degree view of life. John Hall was who had built the Metro Centre and got knighted for it and had wide vision, was at the front. Backing him was Freddie Fletcher, who had huge vision and who was the man at Glasgow Rangers behind Graeme Souness that said, we can do anything. Whether that signing is signing Catholic players when it's a Protestant club or seen as a Protestant club, whether it was not being content just to play with the best of Scottish players, but let's go and take the best England players, be it Terry Butcher, etc., and sign all them. He had the vision to push that at Rangers, and then he had the vision to say, let's go and get Kevin Keegan as a manager and look beyond the fact that anybody else would have sat and said... Good player, but doesn't make a good manager necessarily, which is exactly what was happening with us here dealers. Um, but had the vision to say, don't be put off by that. Don't be put off by his eight years of Marbella. We're going to go and get him. And if we get him and back him in, in the transfer market, then things can really happen. So we were fortuitous that John Hall, that uh, Freddie Fletcher and that Kevin Keegan all came along at the same time, all brave in chances, if you like, chances, but 
worked they, they worked out the averages. And of course, while people obviously remember Freddie Fletcher for his time in the in the mid nineties at Newcastle, he also brought back Sir Boy Robson to Newcastle, yes. or at least played a big part in that. Yes, he did. Yes, he did. Um, when we were again looking for another manager, it he was the one that sort of said, "This is this is the guy. He will fit." And it was um, Shep by now who was was chairman and um, he knew how much he'd always wanted to um, manage Newcastle and how much it, it, it's it's a bit like the tale that's been spun and sold on on um, Steve Bruce very late in your career you, you've always wanted to manage Newcastle then the chance comes along we should take it Brucey is a totally different sir set of circumstances because of the current owner and fan situation. Bobby Robson was totally wanted. The Chronicle carried, when Newcastle United were looking for a new manager, the Chronicle carried a poll, let's vote on who the manager should be, give you five nominees, one of which was Robson and the another as the sixth. And the result of that was over 80% of Newcastle fans wanted Bobby Robson a minute Freddie and uh, Freddie Fletcher been saying this is the man to get the minute Freddie Shep saw that over 80% the fans wanted him he was on the train the next day down to Ipswich to talk to, to Bobby Robson who was out had no idea they were coming and when they arrived at Bobby Robson's house he was out uh, at the golf range hitting a few golf balls and uh his missus had to get in touch and say, come home, there's some people here waiting to see you. And it was Newcastle United to say, come back. And he'd almost come back um, when John Hall was seeing him when he was at Barcelona, but didn't because he heard that other factions of the board were talking to uh, were talking to other people and we got Dalgleish. If we could have got Bobby to follow uh, KK... Goodness knows what might have happened. Mm. And obviously Fletcher went on to become um, on the board or part of the board for the Spoy Robson Foundation um, before his own battle with cancer. Um, just find just a quote from Freddie Fletcher, um, which I think a, a lot of Newcastle fans will resonate mm. with. Three things make a successful football club. A history of tradition in football. A population catchment area and how well or how badly it's run. If you've got the first two, you've got a wee chance. You can't change them, but you can change the third. I think Newcastle fans would resonate with that very much and would would say, yes, you can change the third if you're willing to try. If you're willing to try. And we have got the first two, of course we have, um, because uh, the catchment area is huge. Um, the history of the club's huge, the possibilities are huge, and I think that's what's frustrating, and that's what we tapped into uh, in, in the beginning of the 90s. Um, the great sadness for me is that we we got so far, I mean, from the, the almost going in the old third division to Premier League runners-up in a blink of an eye, 
that was a fabulous rise of a football club. Uh, and that's how good those times were. And we were Premier League runners-up two successive seasons. I mean, that is how... Cl- and then we got under Bobby Robson and got the third top, in, uh, etc. If they could have gone back-to-back, if Keegan had stayed and Hall stayed, because they went out almost simultaneously, I'm talking about John Hall, not uh, not... Douglas Hall or Freddie Shepard. If Sir John Hall and Keegan had stayed longer in partnership or if Bobby Robson had followed Keegan, you wonder the whole history of Newcastle United might have changed because if they talk these days about Spurs need to win a trophy, then by Joe, we did, and that was our real opportunity to win something. And it's a huge sadness of mine that we didn't while... The, the warm memories of um, Newcastle under Keegan and under Robson are the best thing that has happened to us since the 50s. And Freddie Fletcher, I've got to say, was very much part of that. He, he enjoyed being behind the scenes. He didn't particularly want to be a front man. But my Jovi was a dynamic businessman, and that's really what he was. He was a politician in Scotland, literally, and he was a good politician down here. But the wonderful thing about Newcastle in those days is that no one wore blinkers. Now it's compulsory to have blinkers. We hope you've enjoyed this episode so far. Just a quick reminder to please subscribe and review to our podcast through iTunes, Spotify, or whichever podcast provider you listen through. On to the second name on our, on our list. Yeah. Um, it's a man who I think is well known on Tyneside. I mean, it kind of ties in nicely with, with Freddie Fletcher, obviously. Fletcher played a part in bringing back Alan Shearer to Cast United. Yeah. Well, We're now going to talk about the man who discovered him. Yeah. Jack Hickson. Jack Hickson. A dear friend of yours as well. Great, great friend of mine. A lovely, lovely man. Often the great scouts aren't great ex-footballers and um, the next two we will mention and go on to fall into that category as well not well-known footballers um, and with the other two not as well-known as Jack but capable of finding the richest of talent Uh, I mean Jack Hickson I think he's the greatest North East scout of young talent i.e. schoolboy talent ever not he didn't go to the clubs and look at the established stars and say yes let's take him he looked at school kids and took school kids i mean as a discoverer of young talent i mean simon cowell can't hold the candle to him he's a better scout in baden powell but can go on all the time saying things like that but it's absolutely true and the amazing thing about jack is that he all of his working life he was a clerk for the british rail at the central station in newcastle uh, that was what he did every day, although the love of his life professionally was, was football and discovering players. He didn't. He discovered a list of players that's absolutely frightening and we'll be mentioning some sh- very shortly, but he never earned a bean out of um, uh, discovery. He, he discovered Alan Shearer, who uh, was a world record signing for Newcastle United, but he never got any percentage, neither did any scout I'm, I, I'm, I'm talking about, never got any percentage of the transfer fee, etc. And yet he was finding people of that sort of quality, which is quite unbelievable. And the amazing thing, he was a Newcastle United fan all of his life, from a young man till the day he died. 
Um, yet you, you nicked all the best northeast uh, schoolboy players for Burnley, Southampton, uh, succession of clubs until he at last got the job he adored, which is to be a scout at Newcastle, far too late in his life, and only got it because Alan Shearer had signed for Newcastle the world record fee. And Alan said, Well, you know. Uh, this is the guy that you should have and they took him on but it was really far too late but uh, he loved that because he was a Newcastle United man born and bred Um, the wonderful thing about Jack you, you mentioned me being close to him when I was very very close to him and one of the proudest things that's happened to me in football is that when Jack died uh, his family got in touch with me and asked if I would speak at his funeral um, in the pulpit um, down in Colourcoats, in the church in Colourcoats. And there was only three of us that day who spoke in the pulpit. Uh, one was Alan Shearer, of course, because uh, he was like Alan's second dad. The other was Larry McMenemy, another Geordie who he'd worked for at Southampton um, when uh, Hickson was a scout at Southampton. And the third person to speak was me and them. I spoke first and I got a, an absolute, a very difficult to speak in a pulpit, I found, looking out at it, because you can't, you do talkings, chat shows, we've done them all over the northeast. East, uh, you can feed off the crowd, you can feed off the atmosphere, you can get a couple of laughs. Standing up in a packed church with a lot of famous faces out there and absolute quiet you can hear a pin drop is a very different gig and very difficult to do and I must admit uh, in paying tribute to Jack I, I sort of choked on my words near the end and then sat down and wondered oh dear did I lose it and then I saw five minutes later Alan Shearer standing there perhaps the hardest man in football a man with an iron will um and he was just totally overcome and, 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 and broke down. And that's how much this man uh, meant to us. And he groomed Alan Shearer from the very first day when he, he, he discovered him at Newcastle, uh, at the school up here, and took him all the way down to Southampton, the other end of the country. And he had him at 14, getting on a bus in Newcastle and going down to Southampton on his own, uh, Alan Shearer. Uh, and from the day he made his first team debut at Southampton, scored a hat-trick, as we know, as a 17-year-old against Arsenal, not against any old uh, team, but against Arsenal. He was in touch almost daily uh, with... Jack Hickson up here, who totally advised him on how to handle himself publicly, both in town and around town as a young player, and more appropriately with the press and, and with the television, etc., etc. And I often used to have a joke with Jack and uh, a joke with Alan later in life and say that Jack Hickson was the, the fellow that turned Alan Shearer into the the boring old so-and-so that he'd become. But, of course, Alan really wasn't born at all. He was one of the funniest men you, you could wish to meet, but he was boring in front of the cameras when he did interviews because he was politically correct and he never said anything uh, outrageous. But he was. it was Jack that did everything from. Jack was meticulous. He, every single player that he sent to a, a football league club, uh, he 
made a note of their birthdays, etc. And every player for the rest of their life until Jack died got a, a birthday card off him on their birthday, wishing them uh, all all the best. Um, and originally he was with Burnley, little club like Burnley. And why was he with Burnley? Because amazingly, uh, he'd served he'd served in the Royal Navy on the same ship as. Billy Elliot, not the star, the, the, the body dancing star, but Billy Elliot that played for Sunderland in England. He'd served on the same ship with him um, and they got absolutely uh, on like a house on fire, discussing football all the time. Actually, Elliot uh, was the one that took him to Burnley and said, why don't you do a bit of scouting? He'd become Billy Elliot's best man when Billy Elliot got married. And he did a lot of scouting and got the Burnley job. And then at Burnley, he signed top player after top player from the from the northeast. Just looking at a list at random, a lad called Brian O'Neill, who was a midfielder out of Bedlington, who was always said by Jack to be... His favourite player, in terms of talent, he would never say somebody was a favourite player because of all his boys. But the one that he really admired and thought was a top, top player was Brian O'Neill until Alan Shearer come along and, and topped everybody. But he, he signed Brian O'Neill, he signed Ralph Coates, who went on and played for England, he signed Dave Thomas, who went on and played for England, he signed Trevor Stephen, who played for England, uh, he signed two that become managers, Mick Buxton and Dave Merrington. He signed the Turnets, the Turnets, Stan and Ray Turnent, for Burnley, not related. He signed Michael Bridges, who went to Sunderland. At one stage, Burnley, uh, and this was a Burnley side that was finishing runners-up in the old First Division that he had put their side together. And one of the great things he kept was a programme of a Burnley side that come up and played at Newcastle United in the Central League, which is the reserves, and the Burnley side from 1 to 11 had been signed by Jack Hickson and every one of them from the northeast. Every one of them was a northeast lad who was in a full Burnley side that played at Newcastle United and that programme remained in, in his care and something he was proud of for the rest of his life and quite rightly so. I mean, Jack is one of the un unsung heroes that late in life because mainly because of Shearer I think become well known to Newcastle fans but um, a wonderful wonderful man that I've got such a warm feeling for to this day and I know how much Alan Shearer believes he owes the guy he always used to say you know I didn't discover Alan Shearer you, you don't discover people with his type of talent you get lucky and you stumble upon him. Uh, well, he got lucky when nobody else was stumbling upon Alan Shearer. They weren't queuing up like they were queuing up for Bobby Charlton when he was, he was a schoolboy up here. Uh, but he could see things in players. I mean, Ralph Coates, who played for England, played for Spurs, looked less like a footballer. He looked like Charlie Drake, the little comedian that he used to be. He was, he was a little fatty with, with curly hair, didn't look at all in good condition, etc., etc. But chuck him a ball and he could juggle for England, play for England and had wonderful vision. He could see beyond the obvious 
to see a talent and see it in somebody so young. How do you see in a little kid that you're going to, he's going to become Alan Shearer and do it as regularly as Jack did? Just talk us through then the pride that Jack had when Alan Shearer signed for Newcastle United. Oh, I mean, bursting with, with pride. I mean, he was so proud of Alan Shearer and what he achieved um, long before he came to Newcastle when he won the, the only really top medal that Alan Shearer won in his whole of his life with a Premier League title with Blackburn. Uh, he was so thrilled. And then for the guy to actually come to, to his club because he always saw his... If somebody said, oh, what's your club? He would always say Newcastle United, even though he was signing everybody for Burnley, for Southampton, for every other club, born Newcastle United. Um, and he was so, so proud that the man was coming up here. And you know the, what didn't happen for Jack, and that's, it's a huge shame because it almost did, was eventually Jack's great wish was twofold. He also took... Um, Bridges to Sunderland amazingly he took Bridges to Sunderland um, and he knew his dad Joe and the family down at the coast and uh, Michael Bridges and he always wanted Alan Shearer and Michael Bridges to form a strike partnership A at Newcastle and B with England and but for Bridges Severe injuries, which really kettled him while he was at Leeds and flying high in the superstar Leeds team. Bar for that injury, um, the England part of it would certainly, I believe, have come to fruition. And if you remember, Bridges very fleetingly, through Jack, was on loan here. But it was after the injury had bit into his career and, and so that didn't quite happen at black and white level either. Alan Shearer, of course broke Jack Milburn's goal-scoring record. Uh, Jack would have grown up watching Milburn, no doubt. Totally. No doubt would have been, you know, friends with, with Jackie as well. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, the sense of pride there must have been huge as well when when Alan Shearer broke the record. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, as I say, Jack Hickson had totally been a Newcastle United supporter and he saw War Jackie's the epitome of what a Newcastle United forward ought to be. Uh a top, top goal scorer, way beyond the ability of anybody else, but humble and courteous with it. And that's what he tried to put into Alan Shearer, saying, I can't put the ability in there. I recognise your ability. The whole world will recognise your ability eventually. But let's make certain that to go with that ability, you, you handle yourself well for your own sake, and for your club's sake, because that's what Jackie Milburn did ever so well. And that's, he was brought up with Jackie and he wanted this fella, a very different sort of centre forward to Jackie. I mean, he, he, a legend and a goal scorer, the two greatest goal scorers in the history of Newcastle United, but Jackie was all about quickness, which is the one thing, about the only thing Alan didn't have. Alan was absolutely sensational in the air and Jackie Milburn wasn't. Um, so they were different that way, but they were the two greatest goal scorers in Newcastle United's history. And for Alan to beat 
that record meant so much to Jack, as it did to Alan, by the way. Um, it happened just in time, didn't it? Because when you look back, when, when Alan did that, we knew it was very close to the end of Alan's career because, of course, he'd had a career before that with Southampton and with Blackburn, so he didn't... He didn't start as a 17-year-old at Newcastle and we knew he was running out of time and running out of legs and to be able to beat the record. So for him to do it just in time before age tapped him on the shoulder and said, Bunny lad, time to retire, was a, uh, was a wonderful thing. And, and, and I think Jack, from then on, uh, could just get the cigar out and, and sit in an armchair and think, yeah, I, I've I've seen everything I want to see now. As I say, the only thing probably, uh, and a lot of people didn't realise I did because I knew Jack so well, the only thing probably that he believed in passionately was a double centre-forward for England of two of his boys from the northeast, Bridges and Shearer, playing together. Never happened. It would have happened, but for injury. Most certainly, and on to the next yep. name... Yeah, the next guy we come over to is another name of a, a top, top scout, Peter Kirkley, who might not be instantly recognisable to your average fan, but is in this area has been phenomenal over a long, long period of time and become a very close personal friend, Peter Kirkley. He's still working for Walls End Boys Club. He's worked for them for more than 50 years He's now president of the club, and we all know Walls End Boys Club, how many wonderfully talented players they have produced. And he's been at the forefront of producing these guys. He's now the president, and he's standing within Walls End Boys Club as such that when they opened the new ground at Biggs Main, they called it Kirkley Park. And it, and it took some doing because he's, he's such a, a private man, and he wants to deflect any sort of um, personal kudos that he didn't want that to actually happen and you had to persuade him that yes it ought to be called Kirkley Park but apart from producing so many wonderful players for Walls and Boys Club he was for for quite a while Newcastle United's number one scout um, inevitably uh, up here and he's been involved both with Newcastle United and Walls and Boys Club with, with just about every top name you can imagine and and one of the interesting things uh, is his, his links with the current Newcastle United manager Steve Bruce because while he was at the Boys Club um, Newcastle uh, the Boys Club had two players who quite frankly Kirkley realised the potential but he couldn't get them a football league club Everybody was getting a football league club out of Walls End, bar these two, who became two of the top players in this country, and that's Steve Bruce and Peter Beardsley. Um, and the, neither of them. Um, the interesting thing, I mean, Kirkley told me, he said, Peter Beardsley was knocked back about seven times by clubs, and Bruce was knocked back five times by clubs before and when you think that you know Steve Bruce went on to captain Manchester United under Ferguson and win just about everything and Peter Beardsley become just about the more, one of the greatest players we've ever seen both with England and with Newcastle and Liverpool um, of course the interesting thing is that uh, what, at this stage where they were playing for uh, Walls End Boys Club uh, Peter Kirkley wasn't with Newcastle 
he was scouting for Burnley at the time, and he sent Peter Bearsley down to Burnley, obviously, said, I recommend this guy. And Harry Potts, who was manager of Burnley at the time, who was a North East man, uh, told Peter afterwards, he said to Peter, he said, the one time we didn't listen to you, we lost the best of the lot. And and that was Beardsley. They they decided that he's small, blah, blah, blah. He, he, they, they didn't want him, but they weren't alone with that. And um, Steve Bruce uh, was also knocked back, left, right and centre. Gillingham eventually took him before he went on to Norwich and then Man U. But Gillingham eventually took him. And when I asked um, Peter Gurkley, why did, why did Steve Bruce uh, struggle? To, to find a club, he used to say, never mind. He said, never mind looking at him now and seeing what you say. He was, and it was a lovely phrase he used. He said he was skinny as a spelk when he was playing for Wolves and Boys Club. Uh, when he was a Ben, skinny as a spelk. You can't quite imagine that at the moment, can you? He doesn't give you that impression. But, and he said, perhaps that put clubs off because he was a centre half who's going after Ruffett with centre forwards. And here was this skinny totem pole in the thing. He's not going to be able to do it. Uh, incidentally, he then goes and is not only the best uncapped centre-half that I've seen, uh, but scored 19 goals in one season at Manchester United. As a, All right, took penalties, but a lot, lot of the goals were going up for set-pieces, corners and free-kicks and getting headers. And 19 goals, a centre-half, Steve Bruce. You can't get centre-forwards to score. Let Newcastle find a, a, a man that'll score 19 goals with a number nine on his back these days, and you can't. Centre-half, Bushy, scored 19 goals in only one season, which is quite amazing. A Peter Kirkley, a Peter Kirkley man. And he sent loads and loads of players from Wolves and Boys Club all over the country. And the interesting thing, you know, I, I talked about Jack Hickson didn't make any money at all out of discovering everybody he discovered for a long long time Wolves and Boys Club were exactly the same they produced top player after top player uh, but you didn't qualify for a fee the only and I talked to Peter Kirkley a few years back the only time they received any cash was Fraser Foster the goalkeeper that was at Newcastle and went off on Southampton and England England and the reason why they got two fees because of a, a loophole in the rules a, a change of the rules FIFA brought in a rule saying that if there was a movement between countries then the initial club that you were with will be available to get a fee and of course when he went up he went up and played for Celtic from Newcastle on loan signed for Celtic and then he left Celtic to go to Southampton, so they had a cough-up. Not only Celtic, but Southampton had a cough-up because he'd crossed borders. Um, but this was a new rule that benefited Walls End Boys Club, and it wasn't in a position when Peter Beardsley went from Carlisle to Vancouver Whitecaps and then from Vancouver Whitecaps to Newcastle United. There was a crossover of countries, borders, but no money was involved. But apart from Fraser Foster, where the, the Walls End Boys Club had to get cash, the only other time, Peter said, that uh, Walls End Boys Club received anything for all the superstars was ironically when Peter Beardsley was first taken by Bob Moncur to Carlisle United 
Bob Munker signed him, gave him his break at Carlisle United. And Peter Kirkley said, Bob sent down a set of strips to, as a thank you, towards them boys club for them getting Peter Bates he said the only difference and we wore them at games he said one of our age group teams he said the only difficulty was he said they were in Carlisle United colours with a Carlisle United badge across the left breast so was them boys club played in the Carlisle United badge because there were free strips and that was so Peter Beardsley the great in my humble opinion the greatest talent in Newcastle United's history, natural talent, uh, his transfer fee, as far as Wolves and Boys Club are concerned, was a set of free strips. Um, life was a little bit different in those days, but Kirkley was as one of the great, great scouts and is still involved. He is still um, at Wolves and Boys Club as the president in late 70s, coming into his 80s. And he, he, he devoted his whole life to uh, football. Peter has never been married, um, lived with his mother for lots and lots and lots of years and just went to football match after football match after football match. Every day he would find somewhere where there was a game on and he would go to watch it. And a great eye for town, wonderful eye for town. On to it's a fourth name now. Um, who else is on, on your list? There, yeah, John? yeah. Another scout who um, didn't come from a football background but found an awful lot of, of good players locally, and that's Paul Montgomery, uh, who uh, became a great mate of mine. I mean, it's quite an incredible story with, with Monty because he scouted for Newcastle time and time again uh, under several different managers, but... The amazing thing was that he was a, a nightclub manager. Uh, he was manager of the floating boat on the Tyne, the Tuxedo Princess, which was moored on the Tyne, um, which is where I spent many a, a happy hour and got to know Monty ever so well as a consequence. Um, and he became a scout for Newcastle United, a nightclub manager, become a scout for Newcastle United because the bald eagle... Jim Smith used to like uh, going on to the Tuxedo Princess for a gargle at night and um, uh, etc, etc. And got into conversation with Monty, who was a Newcastle United fan, inevitably, um, and knew an awful lot about football. And in the end, Smith, he said, do some part-time scouting for me. And from that opened up a career which has been quite, Startling. I mean, his background was he just played local football and managed Monty and managed his Sunday morning team. He played at Northern League level and he'd played for Bede College when he was at university. Bede College with two interesting people. The future Carlisle chairman, Michael Knighton, remember that, that was the guy that tried to buy Manchester United at one stage. He played in the Bede College team. He, Knighton went on to, to own and run Carlisle. He played with Michael Knighton and David Parnaby, who was the scout that really established and created the academy at Middlesbrough, which became exceptionally famous for the wonderful talent it produced. He played big college with them. Uh, Monty went on, having been asked by Jim Smith to do some talent spotting from him, he went on to be a scout for Newcastle United at different times under Jim Smith, 
under Bobby Robson, under Glenn Warder, and under Sam Allardyce. Um, so, you know, you've got to be useful if you keep getting invited back like that. For 10 years, he worked with um, the Ball Eagle at, very, at three different clubs, Derby County, Newcastle United, etc. For 10 years, Smithy took him wherever he went. Alex McLeish, who was uh, manager at Glasgow Rangers, become the Scotland manager, manager at Birmingham. He employed Monty as one of his tough scouts for years. And um, his record become absolutely impeccable. One of the first signings he made for Newcastle, funnily enough, when, um, when Jim Smith took him, was that he was the guy that brought Pavel Cernicek over to Newcastle, who, bless him, become an absolute legend. Uh, Pav, Pav is a Geordie, remember, on the T-shirt, etc. Um, he scouted him abroad, uh, recommended him, brought him over to Newcastle, and Monty used to tell a, a funny story. He went up to training, and it's about the second or third day that, that Pav was over here. And he said it was incredible because Pav, who at that stage wasn't didn't speak English well, etc., etc., had a communication problem with his back four, and Monty described him as like Dracula. He hated crosses. Yeah, every cross that came into the box in training, Pav, his arms were crossing and they were going straight over his head, and uh, and evidently. Um, Jim Smith come over to, to Monty and said, hey, Monty, what have you got me here? Like, what, who's this goalkeeper? Because he'd brought him across blind. Uh, who's this goalkeeper? Said, he said, Monty, who had just started scouting for Jim, was so decimated that it's, uh, the ball legal thought he'd got him a, a, a rubbish goalkeeper that he stayed in the house for three days and, and Jim Smith had to phone him up and said, Monday, what's the, why haven't you come down the ground, etc, etc because he, he was fearful of Pav and, and Pav went on to become one of the great legends at Newcastle United and gave him wonderful service, I mean died tragically and is still loved to, these, uh, to this day uh, and he was the first signing that opened the door to everything else. He also signed Olivia Bernard, remember the, the French fullback that was at Newcastle? Little lad, quick, good player. Uh, he signed him. Um, and he, 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 had a, he had a great time. He had a smashing time with um, Bobby Robson, who uh, uh, used to phone him. Bobby would never want to go home, you know. They were training at Chester Street next to the Durham County Cricket Ground uh, at the time. And he never wanted to go home. He just wanted to spend the whole day talking about football. So when training was finished and all that, he'd be sitting in the office about three o'clock, get his head up and think, do I go home? No. Give Monty a ring on the thing and say, Monty lived up in the Stanley area. And bring bring Monty down. Let's come down. Let's talk about who we might look at and who we might do. And he'd bring Monty down and they would sit chewing the fat into the night. And he rated Paul very, very highly. And... Um, he worked for Glenwater at Newcastle and Glenwater at West Ham. And the amazing thing, if you remember, Glenwater took a, had a brain tumour at the age of 47. Um, and that day, Monty had been scouting in France. Funny enough, he almost signed Didier Drogba for, for West Ham. He was the first to discover Drogba playing in the depths of 
the minor leagues in, in France and went to his house, did a whole deal, was lined up, didn't get him, went to Chelsea, a legend was born. Um, but he'd been scouting in France and he'd come back for West Ham's home match. They were actually playing Middlesbrough. They were playing Middlesbrough. And he was sitting in the dugout behind the manager, Glenn Rode. And after the game, the game, Glenn said, look, stay down, have a glass of wine with me and we'll talk about what's happening etc and Monty said look I've got to get a train all the way up to Newcastle uh, Glenn you know I'll get away and he was on the train on his way back to Newcastle when he got a phone call to tell him that um, Glenn had been struck down by this brain tumour and been rushed into hospital etc 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 tragic tragic and he, he absolutely mortified he'd got to know Glenn Rode swinging way back to Monty's days on the floating nightclub in Newcastle as the nightclub manager, he got to know Glenn in his playing days. And when Glenn would come into, there was another nightclub in Newcastle that was owned by Quadrini, there's the Junction and the Princess. One was in the city centre, the other was the floating boat. And in the one in the civic centre, the city centre, um, Glen Rode used to come in and he'd been appointed by the manager to be the minder for this young lad, a precocious talent who was always capable of going off the rails with his wild enthusiasm called uh, Paul Gascoigne. And, and uh, Glen Rode was uh, sort of his, his minder, if you like. And Glen used to phone Monty quite regularly at night time at the, in the nightclub and say, is that little bugger, is he in there? What's he doing? And just checking up on him, etc., etc. And the amazing thing is that when Gaza signed for Lazio, after Spurs signed for Lazio to go into Serie A, having had the wonderful thing under Bobby Robson of Italia 90 when he, he become a world superstar... Lazio actually sent for Glenn and discussed with Glenn paying him to be the official Gascoigne minder in Rome because they'd heard how well he'd done looking after him as club skipper at Newcastle United. And they actually had a long discussion. It was only Glenn suddenly thinking, do I really want to live in, in Rome and change Gaza's nappy every other day? Uh, no. And it didn't happen, but he almost become the official minder in the Lazio days. But Monty, still around today, still in the northeast, and still a big Newcastle United fan, but with a wonderful record and a startling story. Mm, um, to be a nightclub manager uh, uh, who then becomes a top scout for, for Bobby Robson, etc. It's funny, just reading here some of the quotes from uh, from Paul. I wanted to sign Admilson for Newcastle, a Brazilian international captain. He'd spent four years at Lyon and then fought Barcelona. He could defend and play. He wasn't a mercenary. He gave a lot of his money uh, to children's charities and he wanted to finish his career in the Premier League. I, t- I took Aldice to Barcelona to meet him over a meal in a restaurant. I thought it was all done. Then one morning I woke up to find United had signed Alan Smith for £7 million. Yeah. Yeah, um, I mean, uh, with all scouts, uh, and it's absolutely true, and these stories were true, but with all scouts, the biggest stories I've often got to tell, it's like fishermen. 
it's the one that got away, isn't it? Uh, I signed him and him and him. But I might have had Messi and Ronaldo and, 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 and there's, they've got tales to tell. And Didier Drogba was uh, another. Um, and quite a few... Uh, players were I mean Drogba could have Glenn Roder could have Didier Drogba and didn't um, and that happens with scouts and it's frustrating but uh, one of Monty's big things being a Newcastle United fan he, all, he always used to say um, as a giveaway throwaway line he always used to say I never eat bacon you know because it's red and white uh, and he, he was that much of a black and white fan and he's back up here now living up here and he still gets clubs wanting him to um, advise him and FAs across the world to advise him and uh, happy days lovely lovely man did well for Newcastle and on to a current member of the Newcastle United staff yeah um, if Newcastle fans don't recognise the name. They'll, they'll probably recognise the face. You'll see him yep. warming up the goalkeepers. Um, and sitting next to the manager in the dugout. Yes, often. warming yep. up the goalkeepers um, before the kick-off. He's always got a smile on his face. It is Simon Smith. Um, yeah. Very jovial character. He's a very canny man. And um, it goes all the way back to your Gator days as well. Yeah, he does. He does. Uh, I used to always say Simon Smith and his amazing dancing bear. Don't you? You're too young to know that pop song, but uh, it, it was there. But uh, uh, that was always the laugh when he was at Gator. Uh, he was my first keeper. When I took over uh, the ownership of, of Gator, the very first keeper I had uh, at Gator was Simon Smith. He began at Newcastle United, spent four years there, then went to Whitley Bay and then signed for the Heed. And an amazing, I mean, an absolute legend at, at Gateshead. He played 501 games for Gateshead. And imagine this. He had a run of 405 games in a row over 10 years for Gateshead. Never missed a solitary single game. He played five, 405 games on the trot. Can you imagine that? I know goalkeepers get injured less than outfield players, but that is a staggering, staggering record. Um, and to be truthful, he, he was never quite the goalkeeper that was going to have a football league, Premier League career. He was a, a good, good goalkeeper. But as a teacher, uh, he was a different class and that's where he was going to make his name. Um I mean, he worked at Newcastle under Wood Hullett and under Bobby Robson initially. Um, he was the goalkeeping coach at work with Shea Given and Steve Harper when we were so well off to have two goalkeepers of that quality at the same time. And he was our goalkeeping coach at that period. He then went off and worked for the FAA with England under-17s, under-19s. And surprisingly, the women's national team, he was the goalkeeping coach in the, with the women's national team. He went to Vancouver as a consultant to the Canadian Soccer Association, uh, came back here in 2015 to join Newcastle. Uh, he worked, he, such as his reputation, he worked uh, in first-class cricket, uh, helping individuals with coordination etc etc um, very much uh, a man behind the scenes but what I've loved at Newcastle United you know there, there, there is 
a general feeling that's prevailed over the last few years that it, it, it's a club with no heart. It, it's a club that's lost its 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 links to the community, etc., etc. Yet within the club, there has and still is so many wonderful people that have been loyal to Newcastle United over so long a period um, that it warms your heart to know them very quickly, mentioning the sort of people we're talking about. Kath the tea lady, who become so, so uh, well-known at the end, Kath Cassidy, um, who worked for 52 years for Newcastle United, retired in 2015, died, bless her, at the age of 90. Um, uh, she joined the club in 1963. I came back from Fleet Street in, uh, in 66, and we worked together ever since. Uh, she had 26 managers in her time. She worked in the press room. Uh, the wonderful thing is at the press conference, Kath would always walk up with a cup of tea in her hand while the manager was in full flow, put it down in front of him, looking after him. They were all her, her boys. But a great hero, the one that was a great hero above all else in the press room, wasn't the Newcastle United manager that came in and did the press conferences, but Jackie Milburn. She, a great hero was Jackie Milburn, and she had a framed photograph of Jackie Milburn that she brought out of the drawer in the press room before every game and put it up proudly next to her tea urn, the, photo the framed photograph of Jackie Milburn. Uh, and the amazing thing is, when Newcastle United weren't playing well and got beaten by four or five goals, she would turn, she would not make a fuss about, she turned Jackie Milburn's photograph around so Jackie was facing the wall to protect him from the sort of thing that was happening in the name of his club. And she, she got pictures framed quietly of other people with her that she loved and two of the other pitches that were always displayed alongside Jackie Middleburn was Kevin Keegan and Bobby Robson. Um, talking people that are, are still there today, sadly Kath's not with us anymore, but Tony Toward, uh, who's the team administrator uh, of Newcastle United, uh, he was honoured recently for his 40 years service, uh, unbroken service to Newcastle. Uh, I've known him since we were both whippet snappers together. He was back in the days of um, Russell Cushing, when Russell Cushing was a secretary, and he was like the young office boy. Uh, and people have paid, huge people, when he did his 40 years service, paid a huge tribute to him from Mark Clamberg, the best referee this country's ever had, who is, just happens to be a Geordie, to Alan Shearer, uh, saying what it cost Tony nowadays looks after the players in the main his job is to look after the players and he does it ever so well um just a very quick mention because of george ramshaw geordie ramshaw who's one of the kit men at newcastle united who was a kit man for me at gateshead and went over to newcastle united and still a kit man there a very good footballer in local football with um whitley bay etc heart the size of a fine pan like the rest of them and of course we come to the ultimate guy that's still there, Derek Wright, the guy who's the head physio at Newcastle United. Um, 35 years with the club, 
Steve Bruce is the 29th bloke he's had sitting in the in the dugout that he's worked alongside as physio at, at Newcastle United. And um, Derek goes way back. The bloke that gave me his first job as a physio was actually Superman. Um, because Derek had been an apprentice at Arsenal when Malcolm McDonald was the Arsenal kingpin, the great centre-forward signed from Newcastle United that played for England when he was at Arsenal. Uh, Derek was an apprentice. When Supermax's career was finished at the age of 29, he become, because of injury, he become manager at Fulham. His, um, his physio, John Clinkard, suddenly announced he was up and leaving to go to Everton and he was left without a physio. He phoned Fred Street, the, the legendary physio at Arsenal, who had been physio when Supermac was there and he spent an awful long time with physios at Arsenal because of injuries. He phoned him up and said, Fred, I'm in dire straits, I ain't got a physio, what's going to happen, what can I do? He says, amazing. He says, it's your, it's your lucky day, he said. Um, there's a guy that you know called Derek Wright. He said, yeah, I know Derek. He said, well... He's just he's just finished um, a course at Sheffield University uh, as a physio and is now looking for a job. He phoned Derek up within days. Derek was down and he had his first physio job at Fulham. He ended up at Newcastle. He's been there ever since he started at Newcastle under Big Jack John, remember when he was manager? And he's worked through Keegan, Robson, Benitez. He's worked ever since for Newcastle United. The fact he's been there that long just shows that he must be a very good physio, but it's the character as well. Yes. He's another one who's, he likes to laugh. He's got, Absolutely. He's, I mean, Newcastle United have people that have served them so well and are loyal to them as much as we are as fans to Newcastle United. Derek Wright is one of them. Jordy Ramshaw is one of them. Uh... Catholic tea lady was one of them. Uh, people that have devoted a lifetime to Newcastle United. And yet, like we say, Cath had been there years, decades, and, I, and as has Derek. Yeah. And as, as has Tony, like you mentioned. Yeah. And yet, they probably don't see the, you know, the service they've done as anything other than maybe a job, oh. or even you know more than a job, because they love it so much. But that's kind of what I'm getting at, the point that we're here, we're saying these are unsung heroes... And if they yeah. hear this, they'll probably go, what, what, what is Gibbon about? But it's a fact they've served this club for so long no and question. so well. No question. Uh, and I mean, that that happens. And uh, I think it's a, it's a obvious, often a trait of, of Geordie people as well. I don't think that is a labour of love uh, for them. Um, and they just happen to get a wage. But it's a labour of love. They would do it, I think, for nothing. And... I can identify with them because I've done over 50 years at the Chronicle and quite frankly, you know, to be able to report on Newcastle United and sit in that press box for half a century for me has been absolutely terrific and if somebody wants to give me a couple of quid into the bargain, that is a perfect scenario. I don't want to retire. Derek Wright doesn't want to retire. Tony Tower doesn't want to retire. Kath didn't want to retire. They're people with a love and a passion all for the same thing, Newcastle United. One of the best things about Derek, and I'm sure it was Derek, and I apologise if it wasn't, but it was a Crystal Palace game, and it was a Wednesday night. It was the, one of the most boring games, mm. and they'd stuck uh, leaflets to the back of the chairs at James Park, and everyone was throwing paper airplanes. It was that bad. Someone got injured, non come the physios, and they kind of looked at one another, 
looked at the injured players and suddenly he starts a little sprint and there was Derek and the, 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 the Palace Frisio <laughs> and everyone was slapping it up and that was the height of that game. Yeah, I, it was a four <laughs> night other than the pair of airplanes and Derek and the Frisio, Palace Frisio. frisio having, having a race and you put a bet on who's going to get there so first. A little cheeky glance on him. Shall we do this? Yeah, yeah, we'll get it. We'll do it. But uh, another lad, you know, they would have had a good playing career cut short by injury but they forged something else mm. out of that. Um and Simon Smith is another, is, is another guy that's given his life to football behind the scenes and is quite happy not to be in the limelight. A lot of these people, including the scouts that I've mentioned, and I mean, Peter Kirkley, mortified if he, if he was ever dragged into the limelight, unsung heroes, but by God, where would this game of football and where would Newcastle United be? without people like that. There is still heart in Newcastle United and it's beating and thank goodness for that. And why is it beating? Because of the people we've just mentioned. And that was the point that I was going to make. You know, all the discontent and all the anger towards Mike Ashley. Yep. They are still good people who work their day out day in and, and, and putting the hours and that no has question. to be remembered. No question. I mean, um, it, it's like the fans. The fans are the most loyal thing at Newcastle United and are there from uh, birth, from cradle to the grave. And these people have done exactly the same with Newcastle United. And that is the strength of Newcastle United. Some people will say it's the weakness as well because the love is so passionate it cannot be knocked back. But it, when I think of Newcastle United as my club, as all Geordies do think like that, I like to think, of people that I've just mentioned here today and not necessarily of other people who come into the club and then leave it. Um, it's not their club. This is our club and it's the club of the people we've just highlighted today. And I take my hat off to them. Well, there you have it. Another episode of Gibbo's Corner. Please remember to like and subscribe to whichever podcast platform you do listen to. And we will be back later this month um, with another episode of Gibbo's Corner. Once again, thank you very much for tuning in. Mm-hmm.